Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. So welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we're again going to talk about the the kingdom of God and what it looks like to seek the righteousness of God. And we're uh, on the topic of social justice. Uh, we were talking about critical theory this morning. And uh, I put the information I have about critical theory, which is rather limited, on uh, our page on social justice. So that's where you'd normally look it up. And social justice is supposed to be a concept of fair and just relations between the individuals or the individual and society. But over the centuries, ideas creep into the thinking of society that actually abandons what is fair and just for the individual under the guise of what we commonly call today social justice. The original use of the term social justice was uh, about taking care of the needy of society and the abused of society and, and, and tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. We're supposed to care about our neighbor as much as we care about ourselves, And so to seek social justice, what if we just look at those words, social justice, justice in society, then we would have a, a particular approach to those weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. That we would temper the law with mercy and justice. Yeah, I was just listening to a case coming up in uh, local issues. And uh, it's all very complicated because not everybody's telling the truth. And so you listen to this person who changes their story and you listen to this person who sticks to their story. And so who are you going to believe? The one that keeps changing their story or the one who sticks to their story? Well, Christ has stuck to his story. Christ has told us what is what. The problem is most of the ministers who are supposedly studying Christ are not sticking to the story of Christ. They, you know, they talk about being, uh, we talked this morning a great deal that they kept mentioning biblical Christianity. Well, what I see posing as Christianity today doesn't match biblical Christianity. And, you know, I talked about the idea of a PragerU video on uh, this concept of was Jesus a socialist? And of course, Jesus was not a socialist. And he gave a number of reasons very clearly, quoting from the biblical text that would show you and lead you to believe that Jesus was not a socialist. That Jesus was actually, for the general population, was a capitalist. He himself did not pursue capitalism. He pursued being the high priest and king of Judea. That's over in maybe you could say politics of the kingdom. It's not politics of the world. You say the word politics and everybody thinks a bad thought right away because, you know, what is the definition of politics? Uh, poly meaning many and ticks meaning blood sucking insects. Well, politics in the kingdom, the ministers are not blood sucking insects because they cannot exercise authority one over the other. Do you have in your church, do you have ministers who exercise authority one over the other? And now, maybe a couple of different 
uh, quotes from the Bible pop up that we were supposed to be in submission, you know, and all this kind of thing. Well, we deal with those in other places. Uh, we have the whole Bible online, including even some of the Apocrypha, including uh, quite a bit of the Apocrypha we put in there, just to examine the literature of the time. Uh, basically, are we Bible believers? Absolutely. Uh, are we, uh, is our faith based on the Bible? No. Our faith is not based on the Bible. Our faith is based on Christ and the Holy Spirit. That faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit needs to be in conformity with the, what the Bible is saying. If we're doing opposite of what the Bible is saying, that is a red flag that you should maybe not be listening to us. But we can actually show you where most churches are doing opposite of what Christ said, of what the Bible says that Christ said, and we can show you why, which is why we have thousands of footnotes on our websites, thousands of links to other articles, taking you step by step to through these different areas of the Bible that talk about this. But going back to the PragerU video, was Jesus a socialist? Of course he was not. He opposed socialism. He condemned socialism. He condemned it when he said the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect because the Corbin of the Pharisees was a socialist program set up by the Pharisees and with the approval of Herod. Set up not only in the temple in Jerusalem but also in the temple of Roma by Herod which was a system where you signed up, you registered, and once you signed up, a portion of what you produced in a given year, whether it was, you know, Cummins leaves or whether it was wheat or olive oil or whatever that you produced, sheep, lambs, whatever, had to go to the government temple. And then the ministers of the government temple turned it into commodities that could take care of the widows and orphans and needy of society. They ran a free bread welfare system out of the temple through the synagogues. The synagogues were ten families gathered together. That was what a synagogue was. And that synagogue uh, would pick a minister and that minister would gather with nine other ministers like himself and he would pick a minister and then they uh, or they would pick a minister and then they would that minister would gather with ten other ministers like himself and they would pick him and they just did this all the way up until you got to the high priest and of course that's how Judea was organized solely at one time and then they decided to have a king they called to have a king under Samuel. Samuel warned them that, okay, because it's written in the Old Testament that the people might choose to have a king. That would be like a chief executive officer, somebody who could execute righteousness in the land so that everybody didn't have to drop everything and go and stop the robbers or the thieves and everything. It was just somebody who had a little bit more authority, kind of a first citizen, principas civitas, and they would elect him to take care of business. And that's what they did with Saul. But before they did that, Samuel warned them that if you do this, he will end up taking and taking and taking and taking and taking and taking. Big long list. Samuel 8. You can find it in Samuel 8. And then you're going to cry out because he's taking so much. And and you'll be back in bondage to him. I mean, he's going to appoint his guys from the top down like Nimrod. 
Nimrod had tens, hundreds, and thousands as well. And we, we point this out. We show you an ancient text how Nimrod organized his government in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But Nimrod did it from the top down, like Samuel warns, your king will do. He will appoint men over you. I heard somebody today talking about the thousands of federal laws. He says, we think that these laws are put into place by this checks and balances of a bill going to Congress and then to the Senate and then the Congress and finally getting voted and becomes a bill. Most of the laws, most of the federal laws you have are put, I, I shouldn't say most, but a vast number of the federal laws, and there's a vast number of federal laws you have, are put in there by men who aren't elected by the people. Because the people who are elected by the people give the power to other people to make these laws. And so they make all kinds of laws, like it's a federal crime to have a dog on a leash that is more than six feet long. It's a federal crime to take a rake across state lines if you have a rake in the back of your truck. <laughs> in, evidently in some states. I don't remember all the ones he was mentioning. But there's lots of laws on the book that get on the books by people who put these laws in. Maybe with good intentions, but they, they end up making almost everybody criminals. Not everybody goes to jail, but a lot of people. It's, you can, if you go on our Facebook page or my Facebook page, it's, it, or go to John Stossel. It's one of his videos that the guy was on talking about all these laws that are in place. And, but the point is that these laws are really not coming from the bottom up. They're coming from the top down. The government is really organized from the top down. You get to elect some officials if, if you aren't subject to voter fraud and, you know, foreigners voting in your election and miscounting the, uh, supposedly you elect somebody, but once you've elected them, just like they elected Saul to be their king, then that guy gets to make all kinds of decisions on your behalf. He can put you into debt and all this stuff. Now, there were five rules back in Deuteronomy 17, uh, 17, 16, that area there, that you were supposed to write down in your constitution. If you decided to have a king, this is all prearranged back, way back in Deuteronomy, and you were to put those in your constitution because that would keep the king from getting too much power. And we cover them in the books, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, and we show you those five things and what they mean. But we also show you that they are not in the Constitution of the United States. Only one of them shows up in there, and nobody pays attention, attention to it. So many things have changed since the beginning of the American Constitution. The American Constitution is not your salvation. It's not a biblical document. It may have been partially inspired by God. Anybody could be partially inspired by God. But if the Bible tells you to have five things in your Constitution and they aren't in your Constitution, then you cannot say your Constitution is a biblical document. There's a lot of good things in it and a lot of wise things in it, but it falls short of what would be a biblical document. I don't want to do away with it. I would much rather you have that constitution than the one you would probably write today if you were given the power to write a new one. But the, uh, just the same as there are many Christians out there who do a lot of stuff that Christ said to do. And they, you know, they may be forgiving, they may be charitable, uh, they may, you know, be faithful to their spouse, uh, they may take care of their children, they may even homeschool, 
they may have lots of wonderful characteristics that are Christ-like characteristics. But there is a whole gospel. There is a whole truth. And anything short of the whole truth is not the truth. Christ is the truth. But what is Christ? What is Jesus? What is the anointing of Jesus? What is the full character of Christ? If you have people walking around today suggesting that Christ is a socialist, they have got no clue who Christ is. They just don't know. So you have to have a way of finding out who Christ really is, and that's what we're constantly trying to do by looking into these matters, looking at all things anew. According to the UN report on social justice, the term is defined as, uh, you know, in their own words, social justice may be broadly understood as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Social justice is not possible without strong and coherent redistribution policies conceived and implemented by public agencies. Now, that's the UN's definition of social justice. But the UN, is, you know, the, the kingdom of God is not a member of the United Nations. It, it, it's a people, but it's not a member of the United Nations because you have to submit yourself to the United Nations to do that. And we're told not to do that. UN is one of those governments that exercises authority one over the other. Now, in the kingdom of God, to be fair, there is a redistribution policy. And there is a redistribution, an implementation of that redistribution by the authority in the government of God. So what's the authority in the government of God? Well, isn't it God? Yeah, didn't Christ say we were not to exercise authority over each other? But certainly God should be exercising authority over your heart. So how does the church redistribute the wealth of the kingdom of God? Well, first, they have to be given the wealth of the people. People have to share their wealth with the church. They have to contribute to the church. And the church then takes that wealth and redistributes it. And so how do we do that? Well, if the church was commanded, and it was in, in, in Mark, and we see it in a couple of the Gospels, and we certainly see it in the traditions of the early church, the church was organized also in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Uh, that's why we had deacons. Deacons is the leader of ten. Uh, that, that's why they talk about the synagogue of Christ and the synagogue of Satan. They both organized in tens, but the synagogue of Christ, the congregation of Christ, is organized from the bottom up. The people have to organize themselves in groups of ten, pick a minister, he gets together with ten and picks a minister, and they do this to create a system of love and charity and hope and faith in the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is love. It's not force. John the Baptist wasn't using force. He said, you know, if you have extra, share with those who don't have enough. 
And we show you how the first century church, the second century church, were doing the same thing. They gathered once a week, and those that had shared with those that didn't have enough. And they took care of the widows and the orphans and the needy in their society, even the strangers in their midst. And they were persecuted for it because the Roman government had a system like the Corbin of the Pharisees where you signed up and you had to pay in a portion of what you produced in a given year. That was socialism. Rome went from a republic to a socialist indirect democracy into an imperial power. I'm getting over the coronavirus here. So, not the coronavirus, but a coronavirus. (laughs) So, anyway... (laughs) I also have a cracked rib that I broke the other day in an accident feeding sheep. But, uh, so, anyway, when I cough, that is extremely painful. But I'm here to tell you how the kingdom of God works, and that's how it works. And we talk about this all the time. And it's amazing the number of churches that continue to go to men who call themselves benefactors, who are parts of the princes and rulers of other governments, to get their benefits. To get their social security, get their free education, get their Medicare and their Medicaid. And they're absolutely terrified of sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and taking care of it by faith, hope, and charity. They want to keep doing it through a system of force and fear and fealty. But they should be doing it through faith, hope, and charity. If they're really following Christ. Most Christians are not really following Christ. They they give them lip service. They sometimes do some of the things. They may have turned their lives around from the decadent life that they lived before. But they're still in a system that is based on covetous practices of desiring benefits, which the Bible calls the wages of unrighteousness, uh, desiring those benefits through force. And, of course, social justice, as it's defined today, includes a government that has the power and means and a coherent system of redistribution policies conceived and implemented by public agencies. Well, liturgy, the definition of liturgy in the Greek word liturgio is public service. The church was the public service. Just 150 years ago in the United States, most of the charity the provisions for the needy of society, was handled by churches, by philanthropic contributing organizations where charities help take care of the needy of society. That's, That's the way most everything was done. Now most, all of it, the vast majority of it, in almost every congregation is done by the government. Yet people go to church They listen to a pastor sitting up in a pulpit, talks about Jesus, but is not actually implementing the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded. And so, because the church is not doing that, people look at church and they say, oh, they go there and they sing and they talk about Jesus and they read from the Bible and they say prayers. But what is that to me? How is that of value to me? I don't need that. I, you know, I can turn on I, my iPod and my MP3 player and I can listen to all the music I want. And I got friends and buddies and we can go out to a pizza parlor and it's a lot more fun than sitting in a stuffy church smelling somebody else's perfume. So, church has lost its appeal. 
Because really, churches in the business, most churches are in the business of tickling your ears and making you think you're saved while you continue to do things and engage in practices that Christ said made the word of God to none effect. A Corbin, a sacrifice, a sacrificial system where you have to sacrifice into a treasury that is supposed to take care of the needy of your society. And you think that's okay. But Christ said it's not. He condemned the Pharisees for doing it. He forbid it with these different quotes that I'm constantly reading from. You know, if we go back and look at uh, Augustine of Hippo and the philosophy of Thomas Paine, which uh, concepts of social justice are they referring to when they talk about social justice? The term social justice has been defined and redefined over the years. So, you know, on the page I, I talk about, you know, vita socialis, which is, you know, uh, another way of kind of saying social justice, the life of the society. And, you know, Augustine had these ideas, and I don't agree with Augustine entirely. I agree with Christ entirely. Everybody else is, you know, has to take second fiddle to Christ. Because there is only one denomination in the church established by Christ, and that is the denominator of Christ. So in 1840, a priest named Luigi Taparelli, using the term social justice, advocated that levels of society having both rights and duties should be reorganized and supported by individuals as members of sub-societies. These individuals should cooperate rationally, avoiding competition and conflict. So he's not talking about denominationalism. He's back in 1840, and denominationalism was well on their way. We'd been, we had that since the Protestant Revolution. But now... Admittedly, he was a Catholic priest, and I think he was in the Jesuit order. I said that this morning. I'm, I could be wrong. You know, I've studied a lot of different people, and I hadn't read this in years. I wrote it many years ago. I already see several typos as I'm glancing at the page, and maybe I'll have time to fix that later. But this is putting together these websites, hisholichurch.org, and preparing you, and, and ministering to people all across the country and around the world is... Very preoccupying since I don't get any wages or salaries. I depend upon my own labor to sustain my family and have for more than half a century out here. And, uh, but I am conforming to Christ in the formation of religious orders, which were ten families, you know, ten ministers and their families. I mean, the apostles had families. They, they weren't celibates or some goofy thing like that. They they had families and they, but they served the people, but silver and gold had they none. Now Christ was rich. We talked about that this morning. We show that, that the Bible says he was rich, and the, but he made himself poor, and there was a reason for that. We explain that in other places, but the reality was is he was forming this government of Christ, this liturgia, that was going to be the public servants of his kingdom. And they were forbidden to exercise authority one over the other. They were certainly forbidden from 
forcing the contributions of the people. But the people went in one day. Thousands of people got baptized. When you got baptized, you were kicked out of the system of synagogues that the Pharisees were using. You were no longer going to get access to the free bread of the temple. We see that with the blind man who Christ said healed, but then wasn't there when the guy got his eyesight back because he went to wash out his eyes and Christ wasn't with him when he washed out his eyes. But he was professing, he knew it was Christ who had healed him. And he was professing Christ and they said, you know, if you do this, we're going to cast you out because you're not supposed to do this. And he says, all I can do is say what I, I know that he, I, I couldn't see and now I see him in his trees. He could see that. So, they turn to his parents and they say to his parents, so what do you say? And they say, well, he's old enough to speak for himself. Because they didn't, it, it tells you, they didn't want to say anything because they did not want to be cast out of the welfare system of the temple. They wanted to stay members because that was their social security. Paid for through the impure religion of the pharisaical hierarchy. That had this treasury where they could take care of the widows and orphans through. And they didn't want to lose their benefits. So they said he could speak for himself. And he spoke, continued to profess Christ. And they kicked him out. And we see Christ going looking for him and saying, you come into the kingdom. What was he coming into? He was coming into that network that Christ had commanded the early church to form. That was not built of dead stone, but was built of living stones through this tens, hundreds, and thousands that would take care of him as Jerusalem would fall in a matter of, you know, a little over three decades, or less, actually, at that time, that Jerusalem would be invaded and destroyed. Christians would escape. They would be allowed to leave. They couldn't take anything with them, but they were allowed to leave. But they had a network that extended all the way to Ireland and to Scandinavia, all over the Roman Empire, that would absorb their migration that was going to be outside of Jerusalem. Now, the many of the Jews who remained behind fighting for this false Judaism that had been created by the Pharisees who got Moses wrong, didn't understand who Moses was, had created a whole religion around it. Now, you have to admit that the Pharisees were not the only Jews at the time. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots. There was the Essenes. And then there were factions amongst these loose labels of people. And some Pharisees followed Christ. Some, I think many Essenes followed Christ. Some Zealots followed Christ. But they stopped doing some of the things that these guys were doing wrong. And one of the things they were doing wrong was creating this system of Corbin, of forced sacrifice. That, so if they were a part of that system, when they got baptized, they were cast out of that system. They were put out, just like that blind man was put out. And they had to reorganize to take care of the needy of their society in these tens, hundreds, and thousands, which is what Paul was doing, helping these other cities like Corinth and, and Ephesus organize the same kind of network there so that you could come and then people would know and they'd say, well, I was in the congregation with so-and-so over here and he was my minister and he was my bishop. And they say, well, we know him and... And then they could find out if you were telling the truth and they would let you into their group and they would take care of you. But they wouldn't just treat you as a stranger. 
Because you wouldn't be a stranger because they knew you because you were a part of that network. This helped Christians not only survive but thrive during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that had become more and more socialist all the time. They talked about social justice too, but it wasn't the kind of righteous social justice that Christ was talking about because the redistributors of wealth, the provision in religion to the needy of society, the widows and orphans, the needy of society, was all done in the kingdom of God through charity, through a voluntary network of charity uh, of men who learned and earned the trust of the people. They would give, the people would give them funds and they would redistribute it on a very localized level, but they also had a way of passing it up to the, through the network to other guys who could pass it across to other people who might be needed. And this is what you see with Barnabas and Paul, that they could take up a collection locally, knowing that this these funds were going to go to Galatia, or these funds were going to go to Syria, or these funds might be coming from Syria back to Jerusalem, or to Ephesus. And we see that with you know, Galatia sending aid to Corinth. Corinth was far wealthier than Galatia. But at certain times, Galatia was doing better and Corinth was doing poorly. And they needed help. Well, through this network, this intimate network that reached all across these nations, this phenomenal uh, network of charity, they were able to help people all over. And occasionally people had to move. I mean, like, what happened to all the Christians at Pompeii when Vesuvius blew up? Were they all killed? Well, we know there were some Christian homes there because we see the Christian symbols. There wasn't, there wasn't maybe a lot of Christians there, but there were some. But we don't necessarily see people that we know to be Christians incinerated in the hot ash that came down from Vesuvius. Did the Christians get a heads up to leave early? We know in the New Testament they talk about Warnings that came to them that there would be famines and dearths in the land and they prepared for it. The same thing went on in Egypt uh, when Moses was there. He predicted that there was going to be this plague and this plague and this plague. All those plagues were natural plagues except for maybe the last one. And there may be even a natural reason for that. But Moses knew when they were coming. He had insight. He had an understanding that wasn't available to the average guy, but evidently was available to many of the Israelites who listened to Moses. Now, we know all the Israelites did not listen to Moses, but those who did were prepared for each of these plagues in turn. And we can tell you more about how they did things to guarantee their survival during those plagues. They not only survived them, they thrived during them. So what plagues might be coming in America? I mean, we have the uh, coronavirus, which I don't really think is a big threat. I think there are dangers out there of plagues. I think there are dangers out there of disasters. But I don't really think that's one of them. And what we're seeing maybe is a cry wolf. You know, obviously, my kids all joke about we survived uh, nine, I can't even remember what they used to call it, you know, when they were going to change from 1999 to 2000 and all the clocks and things were supposed to stop. And there was some disturbance, but it wasn't the end of the world. And 
and then but we've heard several different I don't pay much attention to most of them because they're it's it's ridiculous. I pay attention to what Christ is telling me. And it is true that we should prepare, but the best way to prepare is to do what Christ said, to organize into those tens, hundreds and thousands. So I want to put in one more quote here and then we'll go take a break because we're actually, uh, maybe I'll save this quote till after we come back from the break because I see that uh, we need to, uh, we're actually three minutes over our normal break time. But anyway, we'll take this break and then we'll be right back. Well, welcome back. So here's the quote. It's actually from Frederick A. Von Hayek and he he wrote this in his uh mirage of social justice one of the things he used to say was that he hoped that he would expose the term social justice as the iniquitous term that it had become at at that time so much so that no one would dare ever mention it again <laughs> and he was he was a genius when it comes to economics and uh, and also uh, society, because society is what runs economics. But he says, while an equality of rights under a limited government is possible and an essential condition of individual freedom, a claim for equality of material position can be met only by a government with totalitarian powers. And that, of course, is that once you start down the road to obtain social justice through force, which is what most leftists are trying to do, which is why you see those perfect savages that Polybius predicted out there beating old men over the head with bicycle locks. Those people out there are going to usher in totalitarian powers if they're given the opportunity. And you would think, oh, those are all a bunch of guys dressed in black with masks and there's they're not really very much and why are we worried about them well they're just the tip of an iceberg i mean bernie sanders is a, is a devout communist and socialist and he is not very far away from the presidency of the united states we'll see where he goes but the rest of uh, the the democratic party has moved far more to the left than to liberalism and if you actually look at the conservative party, supposedly the Republican Party, they believe in lots and lots of socialist-type programs that countries like Sweden has already done away with. Their social security is privatized already. Uh, it, it's not government-run. It's a privatized system. It's more like 401ks and that sort of thing. And they've moved back that way because they saw on the, the micro of their own country. It's not a really big country. They saw it absolutely destructive to their society. But most people don't understand that because they're going to schools that still have these socialist professors running things. You know, Socrates, through Plato's dialogues, developed the idea of a social contract whereby people are expected to follow the rules of a given society and accept its burdens because they have accepted its benefits. That's very important. Now, a lot of people will deny a social contract exists, so they have live links on the page. If you go there, it will take you to live links. There is a social contract. People say, well, I don't remember signing it. Most of the guys who say that, I can show you where they signed it. (laughs) 
And they'll say, well, I didn't know what it meant at the time. Were you an adult? Yeah. Well, then you knew what it meant. If you didn't know what it meant, you're an idiot. And if you're an idiot, then you don't have a right to be free. You need to be taken care of by the state or somebody who is willing to take you in. Now, the church could take you in. But they would have to see the Spirit of Christ in you. And the Spirit of Christ is not the spirit of a rebellion. So, you know, I probably should go over this page. I haven't been at it for a long time. but And put in more links because we've added so many more pages, so many more links. But what I was adding this morning, which is actually way down, it's farther down. I thought I see I have several audios there that you can play. Actually, one of them doesn't seem to be working. I'll have to go find out why that's happening. It takes a constant maintenance working on these things. Things shift around and change. But I, there is, I mean, if you went on this page, there's at least a hundred links to other articles. What's public religion? What, you know, that's, that's welfare. That's food stamps. That's, that's social security. That's all public religion. Uh, those are the people who hand out that money and hand out that food. Those are the priests of your religion. Now, if we redefine religion as they've done in the last hundred years as what you think about God, you can pretend that your religion is Baptist or Methodist or Catholic. But if your welfare is coming from the government that exercises authority, that's actual religion. Because religion, pure religion is how you take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. And, and it's only pure if it's unspotted by the world. And the word world there is constitutional order or system of government. That's what that, that's how that word is translated and defined in the Greek. There's lots of words in the Bible that are translated world. That particular one means constant. So you can't have the widows and orphans of your society being taken care of by men who exercise authority or you're not a part of the Christian religion. You've abandoned the ways of Christ and sought after the ways of Nimrod and Caesar, and Pharaoh, and you are content and complacent with the idea of forcing your neighbors to contribute to your welfare by men who exercise authority, which is contrary to Christ. So, I put in a section on critical theory, and critical theory is this philosophical approach to culture, and especially to literature, because they, they I, I was listening to podcasts out on the desert, a number of months ago, and people were taking books, and they were turning, I mean, the authors must be turning over in their grave, because they were turning the meaning of these books into all sorts of ideas that I know the author didn't think, because we know the author's life story, but if you don't know the author's life story, like most people, you might actually think that that's what the author meant. And they're perverting it, and then they're destroying all of the heroes of the past. You know, they they they've got uh, Thomas Jefferson as some sort of lecherous slave raper and stuff like that. I mean, they they reinvent history, and uh, it's it's just not the case. I mean, we have the letters back and forth. We have letters from you know, I mean, his wife and who it was his, he married half sister. After his wife died. That, that's very common in those days. A, a wife and family were extremely important. So he married his half-sister. His half-sister, not his half-sister, but his wife's half-sister, uh, was, was mulatto. She was part black. And yeah, you could say she was a slave. 
You say, well, why didn't he free her? Well, see, nobody's telling you that it was against the law to free her in Virginia. He tried to get that law changed time and time again so he could free all the slaves. But he wasn't allowed to do it because it was against the law in Virginia. But they don't tell you that. They make you out like he was trying to keep these people a slave. If he was trying to keep them a slave, why was he trying to change the law so he could free them? You, you, they're just not being honest anymore, which brings us back to the 1619 Project, which I'll probably talk more about. But anyway, I won't talk a lot about critical theory. But critical theory is void of critical thinking. They, they're not doing critical thinking when they formulate their critical theory. <laughs> and that's, that's what I talked about this morning. Anyway, yeah, I've, I've had a number of other problems besides breaking my rib, <laughs> etc. But uh, we're trying to get it set up so we can do more videos. But I'm looking at so many of the links on this page, so many words that we use. We have links to other articles to start showing you this. But none of this does any good if you don't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And you don't start caring about other people as much as you care about yourself. So that's... Christianity is about sacrificing some of the life that God gives you for others. You will be blessed more abundantly. I don't know if you'll get the new car you want, you know, or whatever it is. that get to drive around in a Tesla or whatever. But you will be blessed if you approach life with the character of Christ, with the wisdom of Christ, with the spirit of Christ. And and that's going to be very important in the days ahead that you do that. Because that is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, anyway, I have a whole section on there on, on some questions. That, you know, like what was the bondage of Egypt and why were we to never go back there again? Well, the bondage of Egypt is where you had to pay 20% of everything you produced in a given year to the government. That was the bondage of Egypt. When you left the bondage of Egypt, under Moses' new plan, Moses' new deal, you no longer had to give 20% of what you produced in a given year to the government. You were supposed to give 10% to the Levites. And, of course, you gave it to the Levite that... You know, they organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They did that even before Jethro came. Jethro was just talking about the courts, that these tens, hundreds, and thousands became a part of a judiciary system where you, you would try people locally if they were injuring somebody or they, they would, you know, he would cause damage to your neighbor and he's, he couldn't get you to settle. You could take it before the elders of your community. And, you know, there's ten elders because there's ten families there's a minister who's also the head of a family and then he has a minister who's also the head of a family so you have representatives of over a hundred families almost a thousand families there in those 12 men and they try the matter if you still don't get justice you could flee 
to the cities of refuge. We have a whole article on the cities of refuge, which was really, it wasn't that you, all the criminals ended up in the cities of refuge because they ran really fast, but you were appealing to those refuges and nobody could kill you while your case was appealed to those refuges and they would see whether or not you got fair judgment locally. And that may take quite a while to do, but that's what they were. And when we go through that in the article and we show you the translations, the actual words, you can think that all criminals, if you were a fast enough runner and you made it to one of those towns, they couldn't do anything to you. That's not what it was. They're talking about appeals court system, same as the altars. But I asked some of these other questions. Have people giving consent to a social compact that might enslave them like in the days of Egypt. Well, actually, there's a live link to an article called Employ, Employ versus Enslaved. And you, you can get there by clicking on the word enslave. And uh, it will show you that you have. And we have an article on social compact. And we have an article on consent to show you how you consent. If you take the benefit, like we mentioned before, you know, in quoting the, these other sources, that... If you're taking the benefit, if you're reaping the benefit, you will have to pay the duty. So, also, we quote Proverbs. Why should the slothful be under tribute? Because that's what it says in Proverbs. The slothful shall be under tribute. Slothful in what? Well, obviously, if you're a lazy bum, you may end up under tribute. But slothful in the ways of Christ. The ways of Moses. Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, And then we ask the question, why did Corbin... Of the Pharisees, make the word of God to none effect. That's pretty powerful to make the word of God to none effect. Well, there's a live link there to Corbin, which explains how Corbin worked, how you signed up for it, how it operated at the time. Rome had a system of Corbin. They spelled it a little bit different. Corbin just means sacrifice. But it's a system of sacrifice that was making the word of God to none effect because it was not based on charity. And the Old Testament said these were all, your tithing was a free will offering. You got to choose who you were going to give it to, when you were going to give it to them. And, you know, they said, you know, you're not supposed to be just, if you if you have ten sheep, you're going to give them. You don't give them the worst sheep in the flock. You don't have to give them the best sheep in the flock either. You let the shoot decide. You just run them down a shoot and he gets... The tenth one. And you do it the same with oils and whatever you produce. You share with him. But he has a job too. Because he's he's the priest of their religion. And their religion, again, is how you take care of the needy of society. It's only pure religion if you do it only through faith, hope, and charity and not through force, fear, and violence. So Moses was showing the people how to do. This is what bound them together. This is what bound Abraham and all his altars together. So that he was able to muster an army overnight because they were all... This is why Thomas Jefferson said there should be public schools. Who was supposed to build that? Was the government supposed to build those public schools? Were we going to tax everybody in the village and they had to pay money to build those schools? No, the militia built the schools. The militia is the voluntary army. People got together and they built the schools. He's just saying we should have a school, which is really just us. 
you know, one-room schoolhouse, within walking distance of everybody in every ward of every county. And he called those wards republics, and he called those counties republics. So if you know the meaning of a republic, nobody's going to tax you to build those schools. You're going to volunteer and go down. Now, what kind of a community would you have if everybody on your block got together and built a one-room schoolhouse on every block in the city where the kids on that block went to that school to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. And the parents were involved daily with that education. Because some parents are home, they can come down for a couple hours, because it's right there on the street. They can come down for a couple hours, and they work with the kids for a couple hours. And then, you know, maybe they have to go and do some shopping, and then they have one somebody else on the block, and there's probably some retired people on the block, and they can come, but they know everybody. Is coming down there educating these children because these children are your future. They are your social security. I can tell you, you know, my kids are all home taught. If, if everybody in the community was working together to do that, you know, I, my dad came from a little one room schoolhouse out in North Dakota, actually South Dakota, excuse me. And from his, the immediate classes that he was in, the little tiny classes that they were in, because it's just a little tiny school. They had several admirals, a general, a vice president. I mean, they just, and my dad, and, uh, you know, CIA agent. <laughs> they had all these people who were great achievers coming out of a one-room schoolhouse. It's, you get a way better education in that. But but you think, oh, you need this big, huge school with all these classrooms and a big sports team. and the... No, you're getting poorer education. And the test scores, homeschoolers test way higher than public school kids. So it's up to you. What kind of education do you want? But that's what the kingdom of God would be. Families organized in groups of 10 and groups of 100, groups of 1,000, taking care of their needy. Well, one of the houses on that block could actually be a convalescent home. And people, or the fact is, is you could have somebody who lived on that block who would come into your home and help take care of your parents when you were away at work. And then when your kids got a little bit older, they would be responsible enough to do it. You all take turns. Kind of like those people in the big fat Greek wedding. How they, you know, if you need help at the laundry, do you need help at the restaurant? Do you need help at the, the travel agency? They're helping each other become successes. That's what made America great. It wasn't the Constitution. It was people helping people. That's what Christ was trying to get the people back to doing. But some people, like the blind man's parents, oh, we don't want to get it out of ours. You know, we're not telling you to leave the social welfare systems in the world. We're telling you to turn around, think a different way, and start establishing the social welfare system of Christ and the religion, the pure religious practices of Christ and wean yourself off of the covetous practices of looking to men who exercise authority. That's another question. Why did Jesus say, call no man father upon the earth? Who were these fathers? Well, there's an article there that will tell you who these fathers were. Next question. Why did Jesus say not to be like the rulers who called themselves benefactors. Who were they? Well, that was your Bernie Sanders, your FDRs, your LBJs, and their war on poverty, which has devastated the black community. 
and and is working its way down th- very heavily through the white community and even into the Asian community, causing the families to break down, not making them stronger, certainly not making communities stronger. I remember the earthquake in L.A. when I was there. Um, it must have been 50 years ago now uh, that I was there. Maybe more than 50 years ago. <laughs> and very few people helped each other out. The, the, it was it was terrible. But I think it was better back then than it is today. Now you have people like in San Francisco and L.A. Because you can't get prosecuted for a small crime. They just walk into stores and take what they want. It, it's, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Because you're going the wrong way. You have to change your thinking. You know, why did the Koreans save their stores during that riot and burning that was going on in one of the, I think it was in L.A. riots that they had? It's because they still had this semblance of gathering together. They still had this common thread that brought them together so they were watching each other's back. This is what the kingdom is. It's the buddy system times ten. But it is what Christ told us to do. If you think you want to be a Christian... A real Christian. Not the watered-down apostate Christian that we see in most places. And I know in every church you'll have some people who really want to be a real Christian and are willing to repent and go the other way. You know, why did Peter say that covetous practices would make you merchandise and curse your children? Well, that's, that's three articles in that one sentence, one question. What did Jesus list off as the weightier matters? Why did Jesus command that the people sit down in tens? The only time he commanded people was he commanded them to sit down in tens, hundreds and thousands. What is religion and what is pure religion? Two articles in that question. Why did the church have a daily ministration? Where's your daily ministration? Is it men who exercise authority? Is it the fathers of the earth? Or is it the church established by Christ? that is helping set up that daily ministration through the love and charity of the people. That's that's why the Bible, and I said it this morning, was the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But modern Christians don't know that, which is the next article and the next line. But the early church did know that because they were actually following the ways of Christ. Now I know this is so much different than what everybody else is used to. You know, I'm throwing a lot out here and I go down into golden calves and what are the altars of earth and the altars of stone? What is the Sabbath? You know, somebody, I heard somebody, Greek Orthodox guy talking about the days of the week and referring to them by their Greek names, which is the first day, second day, third day. Well, the sixth day of the week is Friday. And that is called the preparation day. Well, that's, that's in the Greek and they knew that. And so he thinks, I assume that he thinks he's keeping Sabbath because they're worshiping on, I guess, Saturday. I didn't listen to the whole audio, but I I heard a little bit of it. But the Sabbath is not about a day. It's about a way. It's the way of Christ. And if, if you're doing all these things that I mentioned above, you're not keeping the Sabbath. You're actually a surety for debt. If you're a surety for debt... That's for sure you haven't kept the Sabbath. So anyway, that's the the basis of it. You can go to preparingyou.com and you can look up social justice and see the article. Hopefully I'll get those little typos fixed so they won't be in there anymore. But the big thing is when you're at Preparing You, join the network. 
Find out the closest people in your community. You don't have to meet with them. You can meet them on the phone. But start gathering. Start spreading this message. Start letting other people know that you need to be seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.